It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO David Abeles. David is Chief Executive Officer of TaylorMade Golf Company, a global leading manufacturer of golf equipment, golf balls, and golf accessory products, and he oversees all business units for the TaylorMade, Adams, and Ashworth brands. A 15-year veteran of the TaylorMade Golf Company, David rejoined the organization in February 2015 as Chief Executive Officer and President. David's a graduate of University of Connecticut School of Business and resides in San Diego with his wife and three sons. David Abelis, welcome into the corner office. Brand, thank you. Nice to be here this morning. Yeah, great to have you here today and appreciate you getting up early on the on the West Coast. I have the advantage of three hours ahead of you. I'm working in our Connecticut office today, so I appreciate you giving us this early morning. We'd like to start with uh, you know a little bit about the early years. Maybe you can tell me about kind of where you grew up and what your family life was like. Well, Brant, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. It's also somewhat ironic that you're based in Connecticut because we can start there because that's where I'm from. Awesome, and, uh, awesome. Yeah, I was born and raised right in the middle of the state, town called Glastonbury, notorious for having more horses than people. <laughs> I know where uh, that is. <laughs> yeah, sure, I'm sure you do. But uh, Glastonbury was a uh, a suburb, essentially, of Hartford at the time when I grew up, which was the the riving in, in really insurance capital of the world. So it was a a wonderful suburban community to Hartford, Connecticut. I grew up in a terrific household, a, a very middle-class household. My father uh, is a PhD in physics and biochemistry, very bright who's who in science. My mother was a, and is a, uh, a clinical psychologist. So it's very interesting when you deal with a scientific approach to parenting and a psychological <laughs> approach to parenting, which is a byproduct of why I ended up here uh, at in golf. But, uh, but that... <laughs> We'll hear more about that as we go. Was David uh, was was your dad a professor, or did he uh, work? What was his? Uh, how did he use his PhD? Well, you know, it's funny growing up through school and uh, my father having a fairly pronounced uh, uh, education and and more so an awareness in the field of science. My father was actually a rocket scientist, is where he started. So when how when cool kids is would, that? When yeah. kids in school would kid you, hey, is your father a rocket scientist? And the answer actually was yes. And. <laughs> And uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about today, my father had a, a very meaningful influence on my life and my career. And um, and I, in fact, I can I'll never forget. You know, the, the first time I was really introduced to his his genius was actually down at Cape Canaveral. And for for you or for any of your clients that have, have been down to Cape Canaveral in Florida, there's a rocket called the Saturn V, which is laying on its side there. And my father really led the development of the nose cone of that project. And 
solve the reentry theory. It's very easy to get astronauts out of the universe, but in the atmosphere, but how do you get them back in? And that was really uh, one of the things my father did very well. But yes, he was a professor, uh, professor at Columbia, did some work at Yale, also ran science education for the state of New York and Connecticut. So he's a very special, special guy in my life. That's awesome. And did he work for NASA then as well, or, or one of the uh, contractors? Yeah, he was in private practice initially with a company called Avco out of Boston. This is years ago. My father, thank God, is uh, 89 years old and still going strong right now. But uh, he did a lot of his work in private practice, which was subcontract work to NASA. He also was a board member of the National Science Foundation and did quite a bit of work with NASA directly. So yeah, uh, there's a lot of science in our family. Fascinating. And did mom have her own practice? Uh, she did, but then she converted her practice into vocational counseling. And my mother's a, a very touchy-feely, sweet human being. And, and uh, you know, some of those traits have been transferred, not all of them. Um, but, I, but I hope enough of them to, to help our team here at TaylorMade uh, feel really good about what we do. Uh, and and um, as I get, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, uh, my mother really dedicated her career and her craft to helping others find uh, emotional stability so that they can they can really define their lives in a much broader, more meaningful way. And so she really invested most of her time and energy into helping others uh, be better and, and get better in their own right in terms of the things that they do want to do or the person or human being that they are or want to become. Awesome. Awesome. Brothers and sisters, David? I do. I have a terrific sister. Um, she, uh, she is two years older than I am to the day, Brant. No, to the day. So think about, think about this for a second. A scientific father and a psychological mother <laughs> and a sister that literally shares exactly the same birthday as her younger brother on April 5th. So listen, this is not happenstance. There have to be some, some scientific planning in this. <laughs> Absolutely. And what does she do? Well, my sister is, she's amazing. You know, she's uh, the type of sister that I think every younger brother would like to grow up with. First of all, uh, she's absolutely beautiful and everything she touched turned to gold. She was uh, part of the Miss Connecticut pageant. So they're hence, hence tied to Connecticut, but she's awfully intelligent. Uh, she started her career actually uh, on the insurance side of things. There's the connection to Hartford, uh, insuring, insuring high-tech crime and fraud. So uh, you may know this, your listeners may know this, your clients may know this, but uh, she would actually ensure the money flow from casinos into the armored vehicles in literally the seconds from the time it transfers from the cash room into the into the actual vehicle. But my sister's so ethical, she really she really had a tough time doing that because the premium's so high and there was never a claim. Um, so in the end, uh, she followed my father's footsteps, got into education, and has worked uh, through the Connecticut school systems, not only as a teacher, uh, but through administration and really is uh, something very, very special. She has a degree in mathematics and uh, she, uh, she really creates value for, uh, for math teachers all over the state of Connecticut right now through the work that she does uh, in her school system. So, so she really, still lives really here special. today in Connecticut. Yeah. And she happens to be an incredible mother as well. Mother of three. Uh, I, I can attest to that. I have three young boys here at home here in Southern California. So I'm very, very fortunate. I have a terrific family, a great nucleus, a wonderful upbringing, uh, and a very diverse upbringing with uh, different skill sets across my direct family. Well, and you live in a beautiful place. I actually grew up in La Jolla, believe it or not. So I'm just a little south of you there, uh, out of Carlsbad. Do you live out by the beach? We do. We live in Del Mar. So uh, as you know, if you grew up in La Jolla, Brant, we're literally, you know, one town north of La Jolla. Uh, my wife, uh, Melody, is from La Jolla. So maybe at some point in time, the two of you cross paths. So we, we spend quite <laughs> a bit of time. Did you go to La Jolla High School? Was that her uh, alma mater? She did La Jolla High School and then on to UCLA from there. So awesome, uh, she's, awesome. she's, I, I define her as the CEO of our family, which, uh, which she, which she very <laughs> it's much good to is. have one of those. Yeah, 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 no doubt. 
Well, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned about some of the influences of your parents. Share us with some of the things that, as a kid, you know, you remember uh, mom and dad, uh, you know, uh, teaching you and directing you towards. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting when you really start to reflect back on those who had a meaningful impact on your life and helped you develop, whether it's personally or professionally. And kind of as I shared with you, my father had an enormous influence on the individual that I think I've become. Uh you know, first of all, from a personal standpoint, I watched him uh, manage his business and, and manage the work that he did in such an ethical fashion. And, you know, he's really a what I would call a kind of right down the middle type of guy. He says it as it is. He's very honest. He's very fact-based, as all scientists need to be. Um, while he relies on certain intuitive qualities of things that he had developed over time professionally, what he really leans back on as is as the mode of science would require are the facts and the data points that would enable you to find conclusions in the things that you're doing. So, uh, you know, my father was extremely influential, not only in the ethical nature in terms of how he lived his life, uh, in terms of how he raised me and my sister, but importantly, I watched him make decisions by using the appropriate data points in a very, very planned and methodical way to ultimately determine, yeah, a very analytical approach to the things that he did to ultimately determine what was the, the, the appropriate outcome or decision point uh, for him. And, and so quite a bit of that, as you can imagine, influenced by your parents, really wore off on me. My mother, uh, in a very, very profound sense, helped me develop some of the softer skills that are required in business, in my opinion. Uh, the ability to listen, uh, not just analyze data to make a decision, but how do you listen intensely to other human beings that you're going to interact with, whether it's your friends, whether it's your teachers, your coaches, uh, ultimately your colleagues or those that ultimately may end up working in an organization with you or for you over time. And, you know, one of the things we talk about at length here at TaylorMade is how strong are our listening skills. And those listening skills are transferable, not just internally amongst your peer group or the employee base or associate base that you work with, but your customer base, your supplier base, uh, everybody. So, you know, I would say my father really helped me bring this analytical approach to the things that I do. And my mother really helped me develop these soft skills. So when you put those two things together, what I've seen in leadership is those are two pretty good qualities that mold great leaders in, in pretty much anything you do, whether it's business or any other environment that, that you ultimately decide to engage in or pursue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any other er early influencers in your life? Any coaches or teachers that stand out, David? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that, Brent. You know, I was an avid sportsman. I grew up with a basketball in my hands and a golf club in my hands. Um, so uh, my passion actually was was to play basketball, and I thought I had enough talent ultimately to play into university. I was recruited by a couple of Division two and three schools, and and I ultimately ended up at the University of Connecticut and wanted to play basketball until I realized that that was a very different brand of basketball than I was accustomed <laughs> to. A very high-level yeah. brand, as yeah, we know. Yeah, so, so I defaulted <laughs> and decided I would play golf instead, which honestly was not only a good choice personally, physically, but ultimately professionally. Um, but to your question, yeah, you know, I, I can recall a couple of coaches in particular, Coach Ken Smith, who coached me in my basketball summer leagues. I would travel around uh, the region, New England, essentially. I was a fairly competitive ball player. Uh, coming from a suburban neighborhood in Hartford, I played a lot of inner city ball. And the lessons learned not only from the coach, uh, but from the tenacity and the different type of uh, the, what I should say, different type of approach to not only the sport, but life, that inner city kids that perhaps didn't have the resources um, or accessibility to, to certain things that I did growing in a suburban neighborhood um, was very, very influential to me. And it helped me eliminate a lot of fears of diversity. It helped me eliminate a lot of fears about engaging uh, different socioeconomic classes or different types of cultures or engaging different types of um, 
individuals with vastly different backgrounds than I had. And I learned more on the basketball court and, and through Coach Smith than perhaps I, I learned in any point in time uh, through my adolescence and my development as a young adult. Well, it sounds like you're exposed to that diversity at a very young age, huh? I was, and I'm very fortunate to do so. And I try to do the same things for my kids because in, in today's world, you can somewhat be insulated in a bit of a bubble. And I really believe as you ascend to whatever you choose to do uh, in your life, uh, having an understanding and a broad-based feel and, and accessibility and experience around others and, and their respective cultures and means is very important. Were you a good student, David? You know, average. To be complete, I would say slightly better than average. In fact, I used to joke about it with my college roommates. I said, you know, we would, we would, we would play so hard and then partially work so hard <laughs> that, we would, uh, <laughs> that we would end up just slightly better than most. But um, well, yeah, you know, this was a, a very meaningful lesson that I learned, not only through high school and into university. I had the potential, quite candidly, Brant, of being a terrific student. Um, I believe I had enough horsepower intellectually to, to be a good student. I believe if I could apply, you know, my, my intellect or whatever talent that I might have to the work that was in front of me, I could truly excel. Uh, and in certain things that I was passionate about, I did, you know, so in certain areas of school, whether it was marketing or, or finance, things that actually I was interested in that had pure connections to business. I, I learned that I really wanted to be in business at a young age, and I can share some of those thoughts with you as well. Uh, those are the things that I excelled at. The things that I had less interest in, which is fairly commonplace, I really didn't spend as much time or attention to. And so when you put those two things together, quite candidly, I was a better than average student. But one of the lessons learned, and I've applied that really since university, was that there's a real difference between talent and potential. And you can see so many individuals, I see it every day in the work that we do and the individuals. We have ter a terrific workforce here at TaylorMade. Um, and we hire for talent, we hire for cultural fit, but in the end, we look for individuals that have great potential, but more important than just having great potential, the individuals that recognize they have great potential and are willing to pursue it aggressively and intensely. And so really, I was a, I was a better than average student with the potential of being a very good student, but I didn't pursue the things in hindsight that I probably should have as intensely as, as, I, as I would like to if I had a chance to do it all over again. But did well with the things you liked, yeah, when made sense. What about entrepreneurial things? Anything when you were younger, you know, paper routes, selling things at Christmas time, uh, lemonade stands, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I wasn't delivering paper and I wasn't squeezing lemons, um, but, I, but, I was, uh, but I was working. I worked from a very young age. In fact, one of the values that my parents instilled with me is that other than the foundational uh, support that they would provide me, food, shelter, uh, and education in most parts. Anything outside of that was going to be on me. So if I, wanted to if I wanted to drive a car, then I would pay for not only the vehicle, but I would pay for the insurance and I would pay for the gas. What were some of those early jobs that you had then, David, growing up? Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, you, you think about, uh, you know, one of the lessons learned from my father was, and, and you can take this for, for, and I've used this from time and time again, in almost every talk that I give in front of, uh, of anybody is I, I made a choice at an early age. And, and this was really uh, influenced by my father's words was if you can choose to make your passion, your vocation, then thing, then things in your work life professionally over time will most likely play out well because you're doing things that you want to do and making a difference in the things that ever are of interest to you. Um, so, you know, at an early age, you know, I recognized that sport was important to me. Um, I coached basketball, you know, youth leagues when I was growing up to make a little bit of side money. I refed basketball to, to make a little bit of side money. Um, those were paid I, positions. Yeah, those were yeah. paid positions. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I had a desire to earn because I wasn't going to get things outside of you know what my parents <laughs> were going to provide me. And quite candidly, the lesson really wasn't about money. The lesson was really making a commitment to do something to create value. And as a byproduct, you know, you got some value in yourself out of that. So what was interesting is whether it was coaching or refing and then ultimately caddying. And, you know, so many leaders in our space of golf started their career carrying a golf bag. And to me, some of the jobs that I've looked at over time have, have enabled me to develop and learn and continue to grow. But the first job I had caddying and carrying a golf bag for executives at Glastonbury Hills Country Club was probably one of the greatest learning experiences I've ever had because you weren't just carrying 40 pounds of golf clubs in a staff bag. You were learning how to interact with different types of personalities, different types of leaders, when to engage, when not to engage. And as you can imagine, golf is a fairly emotional sport. You probably see it if you watch the PGA Tour on Saturday and Sunday. It's even more emotional with amateur players that think they're a lot better than they are <laughs> uh, and have expectations that are much broader. So, you know, to be able to caddy at a young age was very important to me. And then subsequently, I worked some retail and then paid some bills through school and, and enabled me ultimately to get into golf. And some good after some school. good modeling there, too, I'm sure, both from a good and a bad standpoint, right? You probably yeah. saw some behavior that you said, wow, that's not the executive I want to be. But also, I'm sure some some pretty good uh, models as well on out on the golf course. Yeah, that's Wait, absolutely I, right. Going to UConn and in college, I, I assume was kind of a far, foregone conclusion given the education of your parents. Uh, was was that true for both you and your sister? Was it expected that you'd go to college, or did you have the option? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We never knew anything, but education started at kindergarten. And it wrapped up when you got your bachelor's degree. So there, <laughs> right. there was no discussion about K through twelve, and then figure it out from there. That doesn't make it right. That's just that's just the family that I grew up in. Um, and then even advanced education, which my father obviously pursued through multiple PhDs. My mother pursued through her master's development programs and degrees. My sister pursued. You know, I actually, if there was one thing I could do over again, I would pursue my MBA. I actually don't have my MBA, which is very uncommon um, for executives in roles like mine. Uh, not completely uncommon, but more uncommon than most. But, you know, what I kind of look back on right now is that was one thing that if I had to do over, I would take the two years immediately after school and complete that MBA program. Uh, but, you know, flip side, things have worked out fairly well for me professionally. And my MBA has been a hands-on MBA working through the respective roles that I've had over time leading me to the job that I'm in today. And you studied business or economics at undergrad? I did business, uh, specifically marketing and finance. So I had a, a very uh, keen aptitude and desire to learn more about consumer behavior and why consumers would make certain decisions, particularly about consumer products. Uh, not necessarily services, not necessarily engagement in technology, but consumer products, something that was tangible that somebody would buy and actually utilize for personal gain benefit or just even emotional connection to it. Uh, and there's a lot of you know synergies that tie into what we do here at TaylorMade every day, making golf clubs and golf balls. Uh, that really that education has helped me build a bit of a foundation to help make some good decisions here. Um, so yeah, and then then and financially, it was very important for me to understand, hey, how do you convert an idea or a consumer behavior into actually a business? And then how do you account for that business? What matters most? Not just P&L management, but into a balance sheet and and clearly understanding you know, how businesses run. So my focus was on marketing and finance through the School of Business at the University of Connecticut. What was that first job out of college, David? Well, my first job out of college actually was as a sales rep for a small company based in Springfield, Tennessee. I was the lo local sales rep, local meaning I had New England. That was my regional territory. So you think about the geography from uh, from literally New York all the way up to Maine and and uh, and over into upstate New York. I had quite a that's, bit of geography. That's a big, 
big uh, chunk of land. <laughs> yeah, but it did quite quite a bit. It was uh, you know it was forty two weeks on the road uh, in in hotels with a with an average night per diem of roughly thirty nine dollars. So I got my start and, and worked hard. But I worked for a golf bag manufacturer called Daytrick Golf Bags and. Okay, uh, so reason, right into the sports equipment industry. Yeah, and the reason I chose that job, well, first of all, it was is one of few that was offered to me in sports, so that made it relatively easy. But um, the individual that founded the company was a former VP of sales for Procter and Gamble, and this this company it was a small company, it was a twenty million dollar business. Um, but what was very interesting to me was the development and training program that you would have to work through in order to actually. Uh, get your certification to get out into the field and sell. And it was a P&G space sales approach. And the beauty Sounds of the like company it. was this heavy investment in people. So another lesson learned early in my career, a heavy investment in people and their personal, or in this case, professional development. Um, the challenge the company had was once they developed these young, green, talented, uh, high potential, uh, what I would call athletes, um, the bigger companies recognized that clearly had bigger resources. <laughs> and, and, so, right. and that's what happened with me. I committed to fulfill, you know, 18 months worth of obligation. I learned a lot. I appreciate everything that Dennis Ryan and Daytrick Golf Bags did for me, but subsequently TaylorMade actually called and said, Hey, we'd like you to take on more responsibility here. Share with us some of the early leadership lessons that you had from, from bosses and mentors and, and, you know, good as well as bad, you know, because I know growing up in a career, sometimes it's the observations that you make of folks that say, wow, that's a, that's an experience I never want to give anyone else. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah. Well, you know, the early lesson learned uh, for me was that there's a, a vast difference between leadership and management. I mean, it's so dramatically different. And, and a lot of executives really, even to this day, they're confused by that. You know, they believe that, you know, defining objectives and setting goals and essentially managing an individual, regardless of role or responsibility in an organization is effective leadership. That's management, right? That is, that, that could be tactical day-to-day -day management. It could be management on a quarterly or annual basis. It could be a performance evaluation. And, and that's critically important in any organization. But the difference in leadership, and, and I learned this very early on from actually the vice president of sales at TaylorMade, because I had started my career in sales at Daytrick. I worked into a sales position at TaylorMade before I got into a management role, I watched him not only manage the sales function in terms of here's your monthly target and objective and how are we tracking to that? What are the specific, what are the specific KPIs and setting defined goals and what are we trying to accomplish over a year? But how he brought the energy and passion to the organization and what we were selling to life was something very different than tactical management and goal setting. Because he, he created a sense of belief in the organization, in the brand and the company and the products that we were selling. And in really the course that we had set to pursue, to find our own excellence, and he used to talk about pursuing your excellence uh, with great frequency, it was very clear through his leadership that there was a vast difference between managing and leading. And so that was really my first exposure to the difference between good management and great leadership. And I've really tried to model that throughout the course of my career. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you started uh, managing and leading people? I do. And I was an unmitigated disaster, to be, honest. <laughs> to, to, to be completely honest with you, Brant, because when you're an individual contributor out in the field as a sales rep, you're responsible for really one thing, your performance with your customer base in support of the, the company objectives. And so the only individual I really worried about every day when I got started was myself, right? Which is, am I optimizing my potential? Am I following my call rotations and routing? Am I optimizing the business within each every sales call that I made? Am I representing my brand and company effectively and efficiently? And am I finding better ways to improve my productivity? All of that was on me. Certainly, I had some outside forces that would support me in my development and help me get there. But in the end, 
you know, when you posted a number, that wasn't the general manager's number, the regional manager's number. That was David Abelese's number, and that's what I was focused on. You know, I did a fairly good job selling our products and, and selling our brand, which led me to my first management post, uh, running a region within our U.S. sales function. And, and that was at TaylorMade, I presume. That was at TaylorMade, and I realized very quickly, and and I had some hard, tough lessons learned through this, but it was no longer about me. It was about. <laughs> it, it really was really about how I could utilize whether they were the experience that I had, the success, perhaps my intensity or my approach to the things that I do, but to influence others to actually outperform even their own expectations. And how could I motivate other people to do things that quite candidly, they either were uncomfortable doing, weren't willing to do, or didn't know that they should do for the means of enhancing their personal performance. So anybody that steps into a management role, the first thing you really need to check at the door is it's no longer about you. It's really about how you can influence uh, and support others in achieving the objectives that ultimately you as a manager are responsible for. Right, right. Oh, so true. How would you say that your uh, you know, leadership style has kind of evolved over time? Yeah, well, you know, with anything in life or in business, you know, experiences in, at some level help shape some of the things that you think about, some of the foundational beliefs that you create in terms of your leadership platform. Um, you know, fortunately, I've had a, a wonderful group of mentors over the years. In fact, even to this day, uh, I'm 47 years old. I've been the CEO of TaylorMade now for just about four years. I was the CEO of a private equity-based uh, endurance sport and entertainment company before this. So I've had roughly six years as a CEO. Um, you know, I've had an executive coach for the last decade. Um, not only an executive coach that helps me with strategy, but an executive coach that has invested with me uh, in my personal leadership development. And so the first thing is, is, you know, and I would, I would suggest this to anybody at any level of the organization, find a mentor, find a coach, sign, find somebody that can honestly help you see yourself better than you can actually see yourself. Because to me, the first lesson in any great manager or leader is, you know, what is his or her level of self-awareness? Do they truly understand their influence or their impact on others, how they interact with others, and ultimately the byproducts of those interactions and their style? And quite candidly, Brent, as you've seen, I'm sure in recruiting so many great executives into roles, that those that are more self-aware tend to be the best leaders. That's right. And so, you know, one is- And vulnerable. And vulnerable, right. And, and, you know, the other lesson I learned, and I learned this from the prior CEO, two CEOs ago that I used to report to at TaylorMade during one of my tours of duty here. I've had three first days at the company, which if you'd like to talk about, I'd happy to share those with you as well. I've got that next. Yeah, but but he, um, (laughs) his name was Mark King. And he used to say to me, hey, David, listen, you know, I hold you accountable for delivering numbers, but I don't expect you to have all the answers, but I do expect you to know where to go to find those answers. And that was a really, really important discussion I had with him eight or 10 years ago, which was, hey, most managers and leaders, they step into a role and because they're appointed into this role, they've earned their way into this role, they feel a responsibility to have the solution or answers to almost every issue that arises in your business. Brent, quite candidly, there isn't any human being, any executive, any leader, and like you, I've met great leaders at great companies around the world that has all the answers. It's not only physically, but intellectually impossible. But those great leaders are the ones that understand that quite candidly, they don't need to actually have all the answers. And in most cases they won't, but they need to go where, where to go to find them. Well, you'd mentioned three tours of duty and I, I had thought there were just two. So I am very curious to hear about, you know, kind of the departure and the return. So tell us a little bit about how that career path worked for you. Yeah, well, there's a bit of a funny story. Yesterday morning, I came into the office, and one of the greatest you know, parts of my job today 
uh, or to are to be able to open the orientation for new employees. And anytime a company anytime a company gets to bring new talent into the organization, it's a sign of growth, it's a sign of progress, and it's also an opportunity to help shape and define an individual's future as part of our company and, and immerse them in what I believe is one of the greatest cultures in, in all of companies. And I'm sure we can get into that as well. Um, but it's interesting, you know, this orientation, this first day when a CEO is willing to come down and spend time with, uh, regardless of the role that we have hired for, we had customer service people coming in this week. We had some cash collectors coming in this week. We had a couple of engineers coming in to work on product this week. I just remember when I started my orientation, an executive came down in front of me and shared his or her thoughts with me around the, the company and, and what I was about to engage and how influential that was. Well, I was kidding around because as I was sharing the story with them about our company a bit and about the culture that we, we have created here at TaylorMade, I realized that you know I had one orientation. I've had three first days. And so I said to our head of HR, you actually owe me two more orientations. <laughs> But uh, I'll, be, I'll be brief on this. Um, I actually left the company twice, uh, once in 2001, uh, for an opportunity uh, to broaden my skills in general management. That opportunity did not present itself here at TaylorMade. I was ambitious. Um, the learning curve continued on at TaylorMade while I was here. But, but in the same vein, I really wanted to step into a leadership role where I had my first P&L responsibilities. And ironically, there was an adjacent position in a company that competed with ours, which was very painful for me to take, but it was a very wonderful experience for me uh, to really start my professional career in general management. So that was the first time I left. Uh, and I left, I was here for six years, and then I left for six years to, to rebuild a company as the GM of, a, of another golf brand. And that was a wonderful experience, very different than what I had here. And fortunately, the lessons learned, the experience, the work that we did there, the progress, the results, the growth of that business led me back to the, the chief operating officer's role here at TaylorMade. So TaylorMade has always kind of been my anchor home. I've never founded a company. So I'm not, I'm not as entrepreneurial uh, in thinking about building a new business. I'm more entrepreneurial in building a business within an existing infrastructure. And so there's an area of, of discovery that some of your executives may want to look at as well. Um, anyway, so I came back and, and we were able to, to double our business here at TaylorMade from 2008 when I returned uh, through 2013. And then I was recruited away uh, to become a CEO of a company called Competitor Group here in San Diego as well. And that was my first CEO post. And Again, uh, I had aspired to become the CEO here. That was my dream job. I had set that goal at a very early age, and unfortunately, that role just wasn't presented to me. And, and several years ago, another role was, and, uh, and it was fairly evident that the current CEO here at TaylorMade was going to stay on a bit longer than what I had anticipated, or perhaps even even anticipated because of the success of the company. Uh, and I really needed to leave to, to learn more about myself and, and develop skills to ultimately get me back to the, to the role that I aspired to to, uh, to earn my, my way into. So I left twice. Uh, it was painful and emotional, but also equally as rewarding. Um, and, uh, and I'm proud that I did because had I not done that, I wouldn't have been able to really bring cross-functional skills or experiences back into the role that I'm in today. And then you were brought back as CEO when that uh, former CEO left. Was that kind of the transition? Yeah. Well, it was interesting. You know, there TaylorMade. Been some other changes? Were, yeah, a couple of other changes. TaylorMade was going through a, a fairly meaningful transition period. We had ascended to uh, really global leadership. And in, in some cases, the term that was used here before I left, which always made me uncomfortable, was global dominance. And what I started to see setting in when I was leaving, I left in spring of 2013. Uh, was a bit of complacency at the top. And that was another lesson learned that you can't take any business or any success for granted. And you can't ever rest on the success that you have been able to achieve. If you do, the market is so competitive. Your competitors are fierce. They're hungry. Uh, if you don't stay what I call humble and hungry, 
you will get lapped. And when I left, I started to see a, a, a more seasoned executive team becoming more complacent and running the same plays. And I was younger and ambitious saying, guys, you know, I'm closer to the markets perhaps than you are because I was in a commercial role. I stayed focused on the customer, which I do to today. And I think I would suggest that as a words of words of advice to any executive, especially chief executives, that you really need to know who your customer is. I mean, with every and and the customer evolves day to day and their needs and requirements and how you serve them evolves day to day. Well, our company started to migrate away from that. And that bothered me quite candidly. And I started to look at the future and and my perspectives on the future as the number two at the company were very different than the perspectives of our CEO at the time. So when this was a, another lesson learned in executive leadership, when the executive leadership isn't aligned strategically, you have a problem. And uh, so, so in, in fairness, you know, it didn't, it didn't necessarily mean, Brant, that I was right, but, but if I wasn't aligned with our chief executive as the number two, uh, it was time for me to move on. And fortunately, I had an opportunity to do so and then start my career as a CEO. Uh, anyway, subsequently, over a couple of years' time, our business at TaylorMade did not progress uh, as well as it was was forecasted or planned. We actually took a step or two backwards, uh, and subsequently some changes were made, and the parent company of, of TaylorMade at the time, Adidas, which is the big multinational sports company, called me and said, would you consider coming back? Uh, we'd like you to step in as the, C, step in as the CEO uh, and continue to build upon what is a, a great legacy of a company, but really pave and charter new pathways through a very innovative and differentiated approach to help the company regain its prominence. And fortunately, over the past three and a half years, Brand, I'm extremely humble about this. The work that we've done has led us to a place that uh, we quite candidly uh, had never thought we could get to. And our business is, is booming right now. And, and we're very humble and we're equally as hungry that, you know, next year will be even more difficult than this year. But, uh, but we're very, <laughs> that's very a good proud attitude to have, right? That's right. But, uh, <laughs> but we're very proud of what we've done. And that's what led me back. This, this place has an indelible impact, has had an indelible impact on my life. I love this company. I love our people. And I have a profound passion for this brand and business. Well, David, congratulations on that progress. And it's a good lead into my next question. Um, but first, a couple of qualifying points. In total, what, about 15, 17 years with uh, TaylorMade? If you, if you accumulated all the time you've been there, where, where are you in that uh, legacy? I'm working on year number 16 right 16, now. 16, okay. Uh, yep. I had it right in the middle. And uh, how many employees today? Uh, how many employees do we have at our organization? Yes, correct. Yeah, we have uh, 1,100 associates here at TaylorMade, Brand, And it's interesting. I listen to other companies, and some companies use the language employees. Some use associates. Some use colleagues. We, we, we tried, actually, when we came back, I built a new management team here about three and a half years ago when I returned to the company to really start to think about our people in much more contemporary ways. And, and the environment here at TaylorMade is, is very unique and different. We make decisions not from the top. This is not a command and control-based company, although the executive team certainly has responsibility to govern and lead the company. Um, but we believe implicitly throughout the organization that decisions are made uh, with those that are closest to our customers and closest to actually where the business is done. So we actually have a, a very different approach to how we lead the company than perhaps more traditional companies that lead from the top. And tell me a little bit about your thoughts for building a company culture. You referred to the importance of that in some of your recruiting. I'm sure you've seen an evolution over those 15, 16 years. Um, you know, where does that start and what's the importance of that uh, in TaylorMade? Yeah, so this will sound like I'm contradicting myself, but I do believe that the culture, you know, how you set and define your pathway to build whatever culture you define to build that should optimize, you know, your potential as a company, that actually does start at the top. What values you want to model, um, what's important to you, 
Uh, importantly, how you want to engage your associates. Importantly, how you want to develop your associates, what resources you want to allocate to their development. Uh, and then ultimately beyond leadership, how you want to manage through the organization. So, you know, TaylorMade, we do, a, we get, you know, there are a lot of inquiries from time to time as it relates to what makes TaylorMade so very special, whether you're an associate of the company or whether you're a consumer of the company, because there's a connection to this brand. Part of it is through these great athletes, whether it's Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy or Jason Day or or Dustin Johnson, these are all tailor-made guys, right? And they, they play on the worldwide tours and they're the best players in the world. <coughs> They've come to tailor-made for the same reasons many of our employees have. They love the brand, they believe in the products, they believe in the company, but culturally it's a perfect fit for them. So how I would define our culture, we are extremely progressive. We are very innovative. Uh, we hire for talent, but quite candidly, you have to be a cultural fit regardless of how talented you are. Our values are very clear. We value innovation. We value authenticity, not only authenticity to the space that we compete in, but authenticity to yourself. Because one of the, one of the tenets in our organization is that everybody has to have an opinion and a thought. And we actually value debate because we believe that if there's a struggle around an issue or a decision that should be made, that that struggle really leads to a better outcome. And so we value authenticity, being true to yourself and importantly, being true to your category. We're extremely competitive, right? Not only is this a sport that is competitive and we're an aspirational type of company, but we're extremely competitive in terms of what we do. And so we hire people that have a threat of competition and, and how they approach things. And, and that has helped us, I think, build a bit of an edge in terms of what we do. Um, you know, and, and then obviously we value the work that we do with each other upon really strong, what I call work ethic fundamentals. And, and um, so we've built a, a wonderful culture here. It's very progressive. Uh, it's the, the energy inside of our buildings, outside of our buildings, out in the field uh, with our athletes, with our customers. It's really industry leading. And quite candidly, I, I know this is a, an old adage, but you know, culture trumps strategy every day. It, absolu it absolutely does. If you have a group of people, and, and companies are just that, they're a group of people that are assembled together that work toward a common goal. And that's really what companies are. And, and so when I think about our associate base at TaylorMade, we are a very aligned group of individuals at every department level, at every functional level, at every level of the organization that have a clear perspective on the vision of our company, on the mission of our company, and ultimately the work that we do that will help us achieve um, that vision and mission. And so that's what's so special here. And, and honestly, we invest more in culture both in terms of economics, financial resources, and personnel resources than we do in just about anything at the company. Awesome. How do you personally interview and hire? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, uh, I get as involved as I can, but I trust, <laughs> I, I trust our, our human resource teams and our functional leads to, to hire the right talent. But, you know, do, I, do you I, personally I, get involved at all levels or just maybe I, a couple levels down or key well, hires? Not, I, I wish I can get involved at all levels, but unfortunately, just due to time, you can't. And this is quite candidly, Brent, it's the most important thing we do. I mean, onboarding and hiring the right talent for any organization is the number one priority in the organization. But yeah, I interview just about every manager in the company, uh, certainly any executive that's coming into the company. Um, and, you know, and I focus on two things, uh, and it's, very, it's actually very simple. It's not overly complicated. Number one, are they a cultural fit? And I'll ask questions around their historical perspectives on the cultures and environments in which they have worked in or led in. How do they view culture as an asset to an organization? You know, what are the values that they can bring to the organization? Um, and, and ultimately, culturally, I'll, I'll get a feel for whether or not, you know, this individual working as part of our team would work very well. And culturally, it'd be a good fit for us. And so number one, if you can't get past that hurdle, 
um, then we would move on to the second hurdle. The second hurdle is, is more strategic and more technical. Do they have the strategic and technical skills to actually do the job? But we can't get to that before we get through the cultural component of the discussion. And so I, I spend most of my time really around those two fundamentals right now. And, you know, and, and one thing that any leader, any manager, any hiring manager has to really get real with is you hope you bat a thousand, Brant, but you never do. Now, you might because you guys are an incredible firm that really have probably the best process and best talent recruiting executives, but it's very difficult to bat a thousand. And, you know, I've always said, you know, what we try to do, if we can bat 500, that's fantastic. If we do any better than that, that's great. But our, our goal is to bat a thousand, but we don't always get there. If you just have a few minutes to interview someone, and this isn't a direct report, maybe it's a manager, or maybe it's a couple levels down, you know, with just those few minutes, what kind of questions do you ask them? How do you get to those points? Yeah. What do you believe in? You know, what do you believe in both personally and professionally? What experiences personally have shaped your life and, and ultimately led to where you've, uh, you know, you, where you've come professionally? What type of value do you think you can bring to TaylorMade? Uh, and why do you think you can bring that value? How do your experience really apply to the role that you're interviewing for? But more importantly, you know, how would you approach this differently than perhaps you have other roles? Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's very, you know, there are a lot of stock interview questions that are, that are material because you can draw good conclusions from an interview through them. Um, but, uh, but the other side of this is ultimately letting the individual, you know, kind of dictate a bit of the course in this interview process so that you can, you can listen and learn more than you would otherwise, because so many interviews and Brent, I'm sure you see this are so prefab that you really don't get to the core of the human being. And if you can't get to the core of the human being, it's really to determine, it's really hard to determine whether or not it's, it's the, he or she is the right fit for the company. David Adelis, you've been very, very generous with your time. We've got one final question we asked all the CEOs, and you've touched on a lot of this, so thank you. And maybe just to kind of summarize some of your earlier points or add additional ones, what, what career and life advice would you give to someone who's maybe a decade or so behind you, but you know, has their eyes on their own corner office? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I've been pleased, and I, I shared this with you earlier, uh, if you're in a space where you can make your passion your vocation, I would encourage you to do so. Um, I've been never very, work very, a day in your life, right? Yeah, I mean, as, as hard as as hard as we all work, there hasn't been a day that's gone by. And believe me, I have some tough days. Who doesn't in any profession? But even those tough days to me are extremely rewarding because I love what I do. So, you know, my first piece of advice is really follow your passion and and, and follow your convictions and what's important to you. Um, and by doing so. Then define specific goals. And, and I have set some pretty lofty goals for myself over time. And I continue to set lofty goals for myself and the organization, which in other words, is a, is a speech that I give from time to time, which is dream big. I mean, really, really dream big and set some real goals and build a real plan around that. And your likelihood of delivering against that and achieving that becomes much more realistic if you actually do that. Um, but I've seen the greatest leaders and those that have accomplished the most in their careers, regardless of what job they ultimately end up in or pursue, that are goal setters, that are dreamers, and quite candidly, build a plan in support of those things. So, you know, those, that's the career advice I would give anybody, whether you choose to, to pursue a path to become a CEO or you want to be a world-class HR executive, a terrific engineer, um, work in a marketing function. Uh, work in a technical role somewhere. Nobody, not everybody needs to be the CEO. Greatness isn't defined by your title. It's defined by the impact you have on the organization and how you're fulfilling your own personal potential. Well, David, once again, thank you so much and best of luck in the continued growth of TaylorMade. Great. Brent, thank you very much for having me and I uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate the time. 
Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.